0: There are some parts of scripture that I want to toss in the garbage. Do you know what I mean? So, I think of one in particular in 2 Kings, where a bunch of kids call Elijah a, bald, a baldy, because he has no hair. And out of the woods comes two she-bears that maul the 42 kids. I just want to toss it. And there are parts of this, this morning that I would like to toss. I'd like to throw them out. And yet, I believe that God has something to do with Scripture, right? To do with all the words written down, and that there is life in the Scriptures. In fact, we'll see in a couple weeks that Paul will exclaim, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's in Second Timothy 3, 3.16. That all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we, we can't just simply throw things out. even if it makes it difficult for us. So the question then was, how do we approach tough passages like this, right? I think the only way is with grace. Not the church. Um, With grace, maybe with grace. But grace for how others interpret things and grace for ourselves and grace for the author who wrote it, right? Right? Why do I say grace for Paul, who we think wrote this? Because Paul was human. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget that the writers of Scripture are simply flesh and blood, with bones, with cultural conditioning, with biases, actually just like each one of us, right? And I believe in some ways that Paul himself struggled with things like legalism, right? He speaks at length about how we should ignore the law. Or not ignore it, but we're, we're beyond the law. And then he goes and sets up new rules. Do we throw Paul's letters out because he's human? No. This again just reminds us that we're human. And God can use flawed people. And he does use flawed people. If not, none of us. Would be saved. But even those of us that are saved have cultural biases, um, blind spots, prejudices. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about the scriptures is that we don't take our failures out. How many histories do you know that feature as much of the failure as the success? Right? Think about that. Most of the main characters have huge character flaws. One was a murderer. One watched women bathe on the roof. Roof, Right? There's just over and over again failures that God uses. And the chosen people continually fail again and again and again. So we don't throw out the scriptures that are tough. So what we can do though is we can filter Paul through Jesus. There's only one human in the Bible that didn't fail. Jesus. The scriptures are God's, the story of God's people, right? How they see God. And then Jesus comes along and shows us how God sees us. And then the writers after Jesus continue to talk about God through the lens of Jesus. So, when we come to these things that we don't like, that make us sweat, that bring tension, we need to process them through Jesus. And you might already know that we've done this, right? When we read the second chapter, most of us here would find Paul's words about women demeaning, derogatory. I do. 1 Timothy 1, to 3-4 says, When I left from Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. Right at the beginning, Paul outlines why he's writing to this church. The church in Ephesus had allowed the culture of the Greco-Roman culture around it, to take over kingdom culture. That's what the myths and spiritual degrees are about. So make no doubt about it, there is a cultural war going on in Ephesus. And there's still a cultural war going on in the church. It's my desire that the kingdom culture instead of the world culture would be the defining culture here at Royal City Mission. I long for us to be a refuge from oppression. And while the church needs to be countercultural, it's very sad to know that the reality is we have often been behind the world in its fight for the release of the oppressed. The church should be at the forefront, not at the back. Galatians 5 says, 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We've been freed from the oppression of sin. We belong to a new culture. The kingdom of God. The language that Paul uses here in Galatians says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's, It's imagery about the Israelites being slaves. Being treated harshly, whipped, beaten, not given food by the Egyptians. I think often we think about the, the the freedom that Christ has set us free as as spiritual. And there is some of that. But Paul pushed, points it back to the, the physical too. For me, if I leave the thinking in the spiritual, I can ignore the physical. Unfortunately, the church who should be the freedom, the the spearhead of freedom, is often the one who does the oppression, right? Think back at how many groups of people we've oppressed. Jews, Muslims, women, other races, LGBTQ, anyone who has a different thought than us, different theology, different doctrine. And that list goes on. And I believe that to be the case because we have let the power drive our discussions not the Spirit of God, and not the people who are oppressed themselves. Face-to-face connection to the powerless, hearing the other, the different, is essential here. Notice throughout his life, Jesus continues to point to people at the bottom of the society to show the powerful religious people what is important. My favorite line that Jesus uses in all scripture is, do you see her? He points to the woman who's on the ground behind him, wiping his feet with tears. With the religious leaders on the other side, and he says, do you see her? He tells the powerful men, the leaders of the faith, to see that she has it right. Someone at the bottom. When we enter into these tough spaces where it's difficult to see what is world culture and what is kingdom culture, and sometimes they do go hand in hand, we need to hear the voices from the bottom, the oppressed, the ones we often talk about but rarely talk to. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12 says, a wife should learn quietly with complete submission. I don't allow a wife to teach or control her husband. Instead, she should be a quiet listener. Obviously, Paul wasn't married, right? He definitely wasn't married in this century. I want to imagine, though, for a second, anyone here, imagine sitting down with a significant other and saying this to them. Just with me for a second. If I was speaking to Leanne, you should just be quiet and listen to me in complete submission. Not talking at all, just listening to what I have to say. Right. I probably wouldn't be married either, right? Now we see why Paul is single here. And I'm joking, but... (laughs) I'm joking, but in our current culture, this is a problem. It's a problem, right? Now, we do have to be careful because we don't want culture to be the defining factor in how we interpret things or how we live, how we interpret scripture. But it does need to inform our thoughts. Much of Jesus' teaching is countercultural, right? So we can't simply use current culture to come to all of our thoughts on faith. We do need to look at past culture to help us understand the context of when, faith, when our scriptures were written, though. But it is important to remember that much of Jesus' harsh harsh teaching was aimed at the religious culture of his day. Who had become more like the empire, the Roman emperor. We talked all through Romans last year, right? And this is highlighted very clearly in the passion. When the Roman figurehead tries to release Jesus but the religious leaders ask for him to be crucified. The religious leaders ask for the tool of oppression of the Romans for their own use. So we can't interpret scripture through culture. We do that through this work of the spirit, through our lives, through the tradition of the church, and through contact with others. I think we have to always interpret it through the greatest commandment. Love God, love others. Last week, Mark did an incredible job of unpacking Philemon. Um, It's obvious to see that Paul in that book was really influenced by his culture, a culture of slavery. He doesn't condemn slavery even. However, he sends a runaway slave back to his master to be reconciled. Within a system of slavery, Paul looks for a way that the church can practice freedom of oppression. And Paul can't see a culture outside of slavery. That's why he doesn't condemn it. But he looks for a way for the church to have its own culture, its own kingdom culture. And he does this in the likeness of Jesus who says, be in the world, but do not be of the world. The thing that Paul recognizes that we need to recognize is that He saw the need for contact. To be truly reconciled, each person had to to look into the other's eyes, into the other's face. The slave needed to see the master was only human. The master needed to see the slave was human. I believe this is the only way we're going to be able to navigate deeply held differences in theological understandings. We often know something based on facts. We think reason is the highest form of knowing. But there's many more more ways to know. And Paul uses this, right? Paul's argument or demonstrations includes the heart kind of knowing. The face-to-face. The acknowledging the image of God in the person in front of us. Acknowledging differences, but loving anyway. Anyway. I think the reason that we've been able to change our minds on the status of women is because of contact. Right? Fathers have daughters. Brothers have sisters. Husbands and wives. This doesn't mean we're ignoring what Scripture says. No, it means that we begin to read with not only facts or reason in our, in our minds, but people in our hearts. And if you struggle with this, remember that Jesus, when he addressed the law, said, the Sabbath was not made for the, or man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. Paul couldn't imagine a world without slavery, but he points to a better way. And here in Timothy, he probably couldn't imagine a world where women had equal rights. We can't fully understand the kingdom that God is calling us to a where everyone loves their neighbor. First Timothy 1, 8 to 11 in the NLT. We know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right, it is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The laws for people who are sexually immoral, who practice homosexuality, or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Remember what I said about passages I want to throw away? This, among a handful of other verses, has been used to oppress a group of people, to treat them poorly. And there's only one word here that matters, or at least that's the way it seems to have been treated. The word in Greek is arsinkoitus, which some versions have translated homosexuality. For me, I've come to the conclusion that this is not a good translation. Paul uses this word two times. It's never used before in Scripture. It's a adjoining of two words from the Old Testament, and we don't see this word in Scripture again. But we do see it in Greek writings, right? But it is used as an abuse of power. It is used for economic exploitation, likely sexual trafficking of children or pederasting. And I hope that all of us can agree that that has no belonging in the kingdom. I hope. And it makes a lot of sense to me because Paul is fighting against Greek culture here. Right? And uses problems that exist in the culture to illustrate his idea. I'd actually encourage you to do some of that word study. Because there is so much, uh, there's so much work being done on both sides of this conversation. Right? Look at people who agree with same-sex marriages. Look at people who don't. It's not simple and it's not easy. If you look at the other side, if you look at only your side, it's easy. But if you do come to a defining answer, please hold it lightly because I I want us to remember that correct theology is not our savior, that Jesus the Christ is our savior. Two years ago, I was able to attend the last pastor's gathering that we were allowed to have of COVID. It was about this time of year. And really, the only part of the conversation, or the the event that I love, is the conversations, usually around the dinner table. And I was invited to lunch with a group of pastors, about eight of them. I really only knew two, and both of them are on opposite sides of this conversation. So at lunch, the topic of same-sex marriage comes up, and there were really strong opinions on both sides, really strong. But I was amazed that there was really strong opinions on both sides. So being new to the group, I didn't say anything. I listened, and I watched the interaction. And at the end, when there was a break, I looked at two who were the most senior, who had been around a long time, two decades of working together, ministering together, knowing each other. And I just asked the question, they think differently than you. How how do you deal with that? And it was amazing. Both of them said this not in the exact words, but they both said, I love this dear friend, and despite our differences, I know that they're doing the best they can to follow Jesus. This to me is the only way forward. In love, trusting each other. But trust can only be built on proximity. It can't be built from across the room. It has to be in contact, face to face, slave to master, man to woman, straight to queer. Those two pastors have been part of each other's lives for two decades. They had seen the fruit of their work. They knew each other. So this issue would not change their mind on that person. It could not. You know, we aren't going to have people show up here at RCM that have difference of opinions on this. We already do. We already exist with difference opinions. Not only this topic, but on others, like vaccine or not to vaccine. There's many issues. Unfortunately, the church has been guilty of separating over these issues. Mostly ridiculous things. In fact, I don't know if you know that, the story, but this church is one block from that church because they couldn't agree on whether it was okay to drink alcohol or not. I'm thankful for the building they built, but God uses everything, right? I really don't believe that a church that splits over these kinds of things is able to show the world love. How can it? It can't even love those who are inside of its walls. Love is really best shown when we disagree. When we have to live in the tension of difference, but open arms. That is in fact how Jesus loved us. We were different, but he loved us with open arms. So, even though we don't want to put, toss out scripture passages, we don't want to toss out those who understand differently or disagree with us, right? We shouldn't want to toss out people that disagree with us. It might make life easier, but it doesn't make us loving. We don't throw out scripture because it's God breathed. It's God breathed. You know that people are God breathed too? Don't know if we always treat people that way. God reached down to the dirt of creation and formed it, and then he breathed life into it. There are behaviors that hurt the kingdom. Things like human exploitation. Things that we need to fight against, feed people who are oppressed. In fact, we can look at the sinless that Paul writes murderers, slave traders, liars, promise breakers, child traffickers. And we see the abuse of power and we see the neglect of love. Those don't belong in the church because it divides us, it hurts people. So Paul lists these things because they would damage the connection of the people in the church community in the kingdom. Those things needed to be left behind because it is for freedom we have been set free. We cannot live in the freedom of Christ and oppress others in the same way that we cannot be forgiven if we don't forgive. I'm going to end with a prayer that Jesus prayed and if you want to close your eyes and listen to it like Jesus is praying for us or you can read it off the screen. John 17, 20, 26 I am praying not only for these disciples but also all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed them to you, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. And now go in the grace and the peace and the unity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.